I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Thanks for joining us, everybody. It is Tuesday today, the 12th day of September. On the agenda today, something called ranked choice voting. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Others of you, including myself, not so much, really. Uh, But it's a different way of voting than a lot of people are used to. Voters, as the name suggests, rank the candidates in their order of preference. More than two dozen states have introduced or passed legislation in favor of that kind of voting uh, uh, in their states and, and obviously gaining in popularity. Yes. And, you know, political conversations like this warm my little nerdy heart. (laughs) Um, So, however, if you're wondering what this has to do with economics, well, here's the thing. The field of economics is ultimately the study of choice and how we make choices and therefore ranked choice voting is basically about increasing choices for the voters. It's a stretch, but work with me here. Anyway, here to tell us more about all of this is Marisa Strano. She's the deputy director of political reform at New America, which is a public policy think tank. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So for Kai and others who maybe don't love to delve deep into the wonkiness, what is ranked choice voting and how does it work? So you already gave a great intro. It is a preferential ballot system, and that sort of stands in contrast to what most of us in the United States are used to, which is that you see a ballot, you're asked to pick one candidate, boom, done. In this case, with ranked choice, you get to rank your candidates in order of preference. So, you know, your number one, maybe you love, your number two, you like, number three, you tolerate, and kind of so on, um, depending on the number of rankings allowed. Then if a candidate receives a majority of first choice votes, they are declared the winner, easy peasy. If no candidate receives an outright majority, an instant runoff is triggered, hence why ranked choice voting is sometimes called instant runoff voting. So the voters who ranked the eliminated candidate as as their first choice, they'll have their votes transferred to their next highest ranked candidate still in the race. And that process will continue until a candidate has a majority of the votes. It might sound a little complicated, but if you can just maybe imagine someone doing a hand count physically, like, you know, walking a ballot over to a different pile after that candidate's been eliminated. Mm. It starts to make a little bit more sense, feel a little bit more intuitive. And again, this is just a way to ensure that when you're electing somebody, they're not just elected based on a narrow slice of the electorate support, but they clear a majority and uh, of people who can at least tolerate them. <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, if you put it that way. Um, but, but, but look, is it better than the voting most of us are used to? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I mean. Voting is pretty subjective. Election systems are subjective. I mean, there's a standard set of criteria that we tend to judge systems by. Those things include things like fairness, uh, simplicity, um, the things like majority winners. Mm. And in that sense, ranked choice actually does a pretty good job. It is not actually that complicated, despite what Many detractors say ranking is a pretty natural thing for us to do. We do it all the time, you know, picking out ice cream, Mm -hmm. pizza toppings, Mm -hmm. um, any number of things. Uh, And the, uh, you know, the cost of adopting ranked choice is not that high. The cost of voters is not that high either. Um, And it uh, it does a pretty good job of 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 doing what advocates say Mm -hmm. that it will do. Maybe not 
as good a job as advocates tend to uh, tend to say, but that's kind of typical of the game <laughs> when you are trying to um, push for a major change in an election mm-hmm. system. So the complaints about the system that we have have been out and about for years that, you know, if you're a Republican voting in a mostly Democratic area, you're kind of throwing your vote away and you don't even get a mm-hmm. say that the primary system blocks out independence unfairly from early on getting to weigh in on the process and that we end up with extreme candidates on, on one side or the other. But what do we know so far about how well ranked choice voting works in the U.S.? So great question. I mean, the key here is that we're still pretty new to RCV or ranked choice voting. And <laughs> Love an the data, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we do. The data is still pretty thin on the ground, but we do know a bit so far. And we know that it does a pretty good job of promoting civility, you know, reducing some negative campaign tactics, of um, electing more consensus candidates, promoting more consensus-based governing, and electing more women and people of color to office. So where it's sort of falling short, and this is kind of a bummer for those like myself who were really jazzed about ranked choice voting um, as it was beginning to spread in the last um, decade or so, is that the um, promise that it will reduce extremism, that it will elevate third-party candidates and kind of break what my colleague Lee Drutman calls the two-party doom loop that's mm-hmm. causing mm-hmm. so much trouble for us in our political culture and our elections, it's not so far proven to really improve that. So it seems like the two-party system uh, continues to have a stranglehold even in places where ranked choice voting has been adopted. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we're still tracking it. We hope that over time as more states, so Alaska and Maine right now have ranked choice voting, but they also have strong independent traditions, so we don't want to extrapolate too much from their experiences. But we hope that as it's adopted more widely, we'll be able to see and measure more accurately um, it's its impact on these things like polarization, like negative partisanship, and uh, whether it creates more space for new voices and new parties to emerge and compete meaningfully. Is there a, a natural limit to this? I mean, you could see it working in city council elections and congressional district elections, maybe, I guess, in, in senatorial races statewide if there's three or four candidates. But, you know, certainly in a state like California, it's very expensive and you don't get that many candidates able to run statewide. Is, is there a limit? Well, there doesn't have to be a limit. I mean, it's Australia has been using both Hmm. single winner and multi winner ranked choice for over you know a hundred years at this point um, across the board. Yeah, it's used in Ireland and Malta and a number of places, and we've kind of already stress tested it in uh, at different different levels of government from the you know city, county, municipal level to the states, and also we've seen it used in. Uh, state party conventions, um, in um, presidential primaries, there doesn't need to be a limit because what you're really just dealing with is a different kind of ballot. Right, right. Um, so, sorry, so what's the holdup? What, why is it not more <laughs> widely adopted? Right. Well, a- as you might imagine, um, political insiders, yeah. incumbents, party leaders 
aren't really enthusiastic about yeah. changing the rules that elected them, that preserve their hold on power. So you're left with a lot of the onus being on grassroots um, efforts, on organizers, on on you know sympathetic state legislators here and there, and city council people. And change is really hard. Structural change is really hard. It's not super sexy either <laughs> and when everything just gets urgent, the woman who's what are you talking about <laughs> as much I'm as totally we may try <laughs> well yeah well, we what we're seeing though is that when people use it and they experience it they do tend to like it and it will spread so there's like there are these little like uh, rcv epidemics happening and in, in uh, endemics in places mm. like california minnesota so i think that we will see more adoption more wide adoption in the coming years but at the same time as it grows in popularity organized opposition forms alongside it and we're seeing you know a doubling of state legislative bills seeking to ban it in the last year and more states actually hmm. actually banning it but again the the sky is a limit in theory yeah that's actually what I wanted to ask you about was there have been quite a few legal challenges um, against this idea what what is the argument there and and how well has it been holding up in in courts when it's challenged um yeah, a lot of the disputes have to do with constitutionality questions, this idea uh, that it violates the principle of one person, one vote, um, which the consensus seems to be among among judges and lawyers that it does not. Um, so that's not the biggest concern, but it's still a very present one if you are um, if you're if you're a lawyer who's helping advance an effort in a state or a city or you're an activist. And also, if you're a policymaker and you're concerned about this taking time and being held up indefinitely, tied up in in um, in the legal system, it. But again, this has become a kind of a a feature of our elections in recent years, where everything is subject to seemingly endless litigation. Um, it's hard to find something that's just settled nowadays. So on the on the getting back to what Kimberly said about about you know this is sort of you can squint and, and put this in the economic framework but l let me take it a little sideways right um, the point of having elections is to get policies enacted policies that are enacted uh, affect our lives every single day whether we know it or not what do we know if anything or is it too early to know what effect ranked choice voting might have on more mutually acceptable policies because you know as you know better than anybody else in this conversation they call it bipartisanship now when you get one vote from the other side and and that's not really bipartisanship right so what do we know about policies that come out of ranked choice voting if anything right it's such an important question and unfortunately it's one of the hardest things at this point for us to measure so we commissioned a study, um, I think two years ago at New America, um, to evaluate policy responsiveness in ranked choice voting jurisdictions. So when you have RCV, do you see policies that more accurately reflect the will of the majority of voters than you had before? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard. It's just really hard to tell. Hmm. So far, we think maybe not so much, but if you think about policy being kind of downstream from the ideological position or the just the the kind of mentality of the elected official, if you are electing people who are a little bit more moderate, middle of the road, 
people like Susan Collins in Maine or Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, whose seats arguably were um, were preserved thanks to ranked choice voting in their respective states, then you can say, yes, maybe this does translate to more bipartisanship. But is it a direct cause or is this correlational? Time will tell. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a better answer for you. But yeah, I, think that, I think that there's still a lot left for us to learn on that front. So... Ranked choice voting is sort of one of these ideas that is is spreading, you know, and, and gaining in popularity, getting pushback, all the things. As somebody who's an expert on electoral reform, what kind of other big changes could we make or even small changes do you think we can make to just make our electoral system, especially at the federal level, just, you know, be less awful? <laughs> <laughs> One would think it, that's a low bar, but you know, right, <laughs> so the bar right. is in the you know the subterranean caves. Go ahead. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it's easy to adopt the position that any change is good change right now, but anytime you make a change, you have to educate voters. You have to kind of get people on board. You have to earn uh, this perception that it's legitimate. So. It's important as we are trying to support lots of different experiments to also make sure that we're kind of backing at least the right-ish horses, that we're pretty confident they're going to work. And something that in uh, in my, my team at New America that we're really excited about is more party-based as opposed to candidate-based reforms that can help depolarize the system by making it a little more proportional. So how can we break the two-party stranglehold on government? How can we force the two parties to have to do a better job than they are now when so few races are competitive and they're just, they don't have the incentives really to um, fulfill their roles in the political system in our democracy. So things like fusion voting, where you can uh, cross-nominate candidates, that gives third parties a real um, meaningful role in um, in elections. And then mm. ultimately, proportional representation. And there is a proportional form of ranked choice voting that is gaining steam, that holds a lot of potential. It's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is something that we have a strong history with in the United States. It was in 24 cities during the uh, progressive era up to the mid-century. Portland, Oregon just adopted it. It's in Cambridge. It's in um, Albany, California. And and what is this one? I I don't understand how it's different. Oh, yes. I'm so sorry for not explaining. So with proportional ranked choice, it's basically the same system but your thresholds are lower. So you have multiple winners, each of whom needs some threshold, less than 50% of the vote to win a seat. Um, But uh, you're still using a ranked ballot. So city Mm -hmm. councils use this. Um, Anytime you have a governing body that um, is elected, you know, we have at-large seats and you're electing multiple people at the same time. Um, okay. So this could be used for state legislatures, Congress. But, yeah, proportional representation is is the heart of it. Hmm. 
Okay, it seems like there's so much more to say about this, but we have such such a long, long election season yeah. ahead. So <laughs> let's end it there. Marisa Strano is the Deputy Director of Political Reform Program at New America. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your Marisa, time. Marisa, thanks a lot. Thank you both so much. It was a real pleasure. Likewise. I learned stuff. There you go. I learned Me stuff. Me too. That's all you can ask. All you can ask. Yeah. We got smarter. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I've been... I'm, I'm interested, like I'm, I'm surprised, but not surprised that more states don't do is a um, proportional distribution of electoral college mm-hmm. votes, mm-hmm. like the winner takes all system yes, of well, the that. electoral college, yep. kind of defeats the purpose of yep. the electoral college, yep. <laughs> which was to give better representation to smaller states and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it seems like there's a lot of things that we could do differently to increase how well represented people's like how much weight people's votes carry and balance it out a bit more but we just don't because of status quo (laughs) right because you know well changing all this stuff means that the people in power are going to have less power and people who've never Mm -hmm. had power are going to have more power and that of course changes everything (laughs) yes and who would want that right exactly well exactly mm. i'm just telling well anyway we love to hear from folks in Alaska or Maine or elsewhere who have ever voted with a ranked choice uh, ballot or whether if, if, if your community yeah. is considering switching to some one of these ranked choice voting systems, what you think about it, pros, cons, stuff we maybe didn't get to um, to context about it. We'd love to hear from you. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us, makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. That was Drew Jostet pushing the buttons in the control room across the glass for me. Doing a great job. Doing a great job. All right, uh, time for some news. Kimberly Adams. Please. Yes. So mine is from the Washington Post Daily 202 newsletter. Um, it's usually all about politics, but they have uh, they went a little bit to the side today, which is sort of political, but not really. It's their big idea section, and they're talking about medical debt. So folks may have heard of this group, RIP Medical Debt, which is this nonprofit 
that raises money and they use that money to buy up medical debt that has gone into collections and they can buy that debt for like pennies on the dollar and then they just use donations to eliminate it. And then the people who have this medical debt, often quite a burden on their personal financial situation, they just get a letter in the mail and they're just like, congrats, you don't have medical debt anymore, just because. Hmm. Um, which, you know, lots of people crowdfund around this and, and do it just, you know, because. But it looks like this group is starting to do partnerships with cities and towns and other kind of local governments to use government funds to pay off people's medical debt. So I'm just going to read a little bit. More than a year ago, Illinois's Cook County reached out to RIP with an idea. They had funds left over from the 2021 COVID stimulus bill known as the American Rescue Plan Act, and they wanted to find a creative way to use it. In May, Cook County announced it was partnering with RIP to erase $79.2 million in medical debt, benefiting more than 72,000 Cook County residents. County entered a three-year agreement with a nonprofit, and the goal is to abolish $1 billion in medical debt total. And, you know, you can make an economic argument for this, that the, you know, the city is spending money and that would eliminate the debt that people have, which could, in theory, put more money back into the economy, improve your tax base, whatever. But it's fascinating to see governments stepping into this space using federal, like, mm -hmm. local resources. I, I find that interesting. I I will be surprised if there's not uh, more pushback to it, but it's also yet another example of sort of socializing the cost of a mm -hmm. private profit mm -hmm. <laughs> again. Um, but, you know, that's that's how it works. I think it's just very fascinating. They have a nice long write-up about different places where it's being experimented with. Um, the Biden administration is apparently talking about the partnerships hmm. that are being formed. And it looks like uh, Toledo, New Orleans, Pittsburgh are using or have passed legislation to use American Rescue Plan money to purchase medical debt. Um, this is fascinating. It's just something I want to keep an eye on. Yeah, for sure. Totally fascinating. Uh, okay, so mine is, um, uh, it's a little bit of a no kidding, Kai, of course, but uh, on the other hand, it, it plays sort of directly into what we were talking about before, which is the politics of this economy. One of the things I've really been trying to figure out is why President Biden is having such a tough time getting credit for uh, the good and improving economy, right? Inflation's down, the economy's mm -hmm. growing, job market is slowing, but not substantially, and that's a good thing. And that, you know, Federal Reserve gets a lot of the credit, but presidents get some credit and, and also a disproportionate share of the blame. Anyway, I've been thinking about that for a long time. And of course, the answer is, well, geez, you moron, inflation, that's why. But we got some data today from the Census Bureau that really sort of crystallizes it and, and gives you some insight into the size of the challenge that President Biden is going to have in the next, you know, where are we, month, year, whatever it is, plus or minus, mm -hmm. till the election. From the Census Bureau today, Americans' inflation-adjusted median household income fell to $74,580 in 2022, down 2.3% from a year earlier and down 4.7% from the peak in 2019, the last year of the before times. So people are, in addition to having to deal with higher prices, just feeling poorer overall. And that's a real challenge if you're the guy in the White House. 
right? Mm-hmm. Whether fair or not, and I've said this a zillion times on the air, I've said it a zillion times on this on this podcast. Presidents get a disproportionate share of credit when the economy is going well. They get a disproportionate share of the blame when it's going badly. Biden now, I think, is stuck in sort of the Netherland where it has been terrible, but now it's better, and he's getting credit for the terrible, and he's getting not enough credit for the for the good, and it's just bizarre because economies are weird. Well, and also because part of how people feel about their personal economies is what yep. they see, 100%. and it's so much easier to see these just sort of 100%. extreme examples of other people living so much better. Yep, yep. totally. You know. Totally. All right, that is it for the news. Let us do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, we talked about uh, farm labor last week, how they don't really have a lot of labor protections. There are labor shortages uh, that affect U.S. farm workers and thus the rest of this economy because we're all one economy. And we got this. This is Sarah in Bangor, Maine. Your show on farm workers had me reminiscing back to a day in my late teens when my mom and my brother and I ambled down our dirt road by the Blueberry Barrens and we decided to try out a day of raking blueberries just for fun. It was backbreaking work. And I'm pretty sure the foreman gave us the easy sections hmm. while leaving the rocky and the hilly areas for the more experienced folks who were mostly Native American and Latino migrant workers. And the kicker came a couple of weeks later when we got our check in the mail, and we had earned a collective $12 profit. Wild Maine blueberries are usually picked by mechanical harvesters, but once in a while, I'll be passing by a field being picked by hand, and I'll be struck by a sense of awe and respect Mm -hmm. for those who still do this incredibly difficult work. Yeah, for sure. Holy cow. 12 bucks for three of them. Sheesh. Yeah. Okay, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, of course, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? And this week's answer comes from sci-fi writer Andy Weir, author of The Martian, and yeah. also, uh, what was the other one I read of his um, about the moon? Oh, um, uh, oh man. He's Gosh, got two. He's I read got, the he's, book. He's, he's it was got, great. Yeah, so he had the follow-up, and then he had the other one that was about um, the space creature. Oh, God. Anyway... Let's play the tape. We'll, we'll get it, it on the backside. Yeah. Yeah. Something I once thought I knew that I found out I was hilariously wrong about was how to spell the word eyesore. This is uh, around the time I was 15 or 16 years old, and I was reading the comics in front of my dad, and one of the comics, uh, the guy said, something, something, that's an eyesore. And I looked at it, and I said, huh, what is he saying here? What is this word? Dad looked at it, and he said, it's eyesore. And I'm like, well, that's not how eyesore is spelled. He's like, yeah, it is. It's E-Y-E-S-O-R-E, eyesore. Like, it makes your eyes sore to look at. I was like, oh, I never even realized that that's what it meant. And Dad's like, well, I want to know how you thought eyesore was spelled. And I said, um, I thought it was spelled I-C-O-R. And Dad said, well, that, that spells icker. That was a, a fun little embarrassing moment for me, and uh, that's, that's how I learned how to spell eyesore. And now, ladies and gentlemen, he's a professional writer. He's a professional writer. Andy Weir. So there was The Martian. Yes. Then there was Artemis. Artemis is, that's right. what I was thinking That's the one of. about the moon. And then there's, yes. uh, his most recent one is called Hail Mary. Artemis was fine, I've not as good too. as The Martian. Hail Mary was great. That's my editorial Mary, comment. Hail Mary was really good. Yeah. I liked yeah. Artemis. Um, I love that there was a, I, I like it when central characters don't have to be likable. 
mm-hmm. you know? Yep. I think that's actually fun. So <laughs> I have to say, I feel like the reason he may have spelled that word wrong is because he's a sci-fi and fantasy person. Because in many fantasy novels in particular, that word, I-C-O-R, is used to refer to, like, the blood of dragons <laughs> or other um, mystical creatures is called Icor in a lot of different fantasy novels that I've read over the years. And so I wonder if that's how it got sort of embedded into his brain. But who knows? I'll have to find a time to ask him at some we, point. We, we, we will not know until you ask him. Um, we we want right. <laughs> we, we, we to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question or what you think about Dragon Ball. And take your pick. Numbers yeah, 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. Oh, that's pretty funny. I have to remind people I'm a nerd every so often, just in case they forget. I, I don't think you have to remind us. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. And today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad with mixing by Becca Weinman. Our intern is Nilofar Shabandi. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. And marketplace's vice president and general manager. And the guy who only appears on the credits on Tuesdays is Neil Scarborough. <laughs> It's in on the long show. I'd pick Fridays. I know. You know, fun. Whatever. But who wouldn't want to be with ranked choice voting? (laughs) See what I mean about not having to remind people that you're a nerd? (laughs) Oh, my God. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.